0: Chapter eighteen of A Trace of Memory by Keith Laumer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Trace of Memory. Chapter eighteen. I stood beside the royal couch where Qualquan the Urther lay, and saw that this was the hour for which I had waited long for the change was on him. The timescale stood at the third hour of the death watch. All aboard slept save myself alone. I must move swiftly and at the dawn watch show them the deed well done. I shook the sleeping man. Him who had once been the Earther, King no more, by the law of change. He wakened slowly, looked about him, with the clear eyes of the newborn. Rise! I commanded, and the king obeyed. Follow me, I said. He made to question me after the manner of those newly awakened from their change. I bade him be silent. Like a lamb he came, and I led him through shadowed ways to the cage of the hunters. They rose, keen in their hunger, to my coming, as I had trained them. I took the arm of Colclan and thrust it into the cage. The hunters clustered taking the mark of their prey. He watched, innocent eyes wide. "'That which you feel is pain, mindless one,' I spoke. "'It is a thing of which you will learn much in the time before you.' Then they had done, and I set the time-catch. In my chambers I cloaked the innocent in a plain purple robe and afterward led him to the cradle where the lifeboat lay." and by the virtue of the curse of the gods which is upon me, one was there before me. I waited not, but moved as the hake strikes, and took him fair in the back with my dagger. I dragged the body into hiding behind the flared foot of a column. But no sooner was he hidden well away than others came from the shadows, summoned by some device I know not of. They asked of the earther wherefore he walked by night, robed in the colors of a maron of Bras and I knew black despair, that my grand design foundered thus in the shadows of their zeal. Yet I spoke forth, with a great show of anger, that I, Amaron, vizier and companion to the earther, did but walk and speak in confidence with my liege lord. But they persisted, Golad foremost among them. And then one saw the hidden course, and in an instant they ringed me in. Then did I draw the long blade and hold it at the throat of Quilclan. "'Press me not, or your king will surely die,' I said, and they feared me and shrank back. "'Do you dream that I, Amariln, wisest of the wise, have come here for the love of far voyaging?' I raged. "'Long have I plotted against this hour, to lure this king a voyaging in this his princely yacht, his faithful vizier at his side.' that the change might come to him far from his court, then would the ancient wrong be redressed. There are those men born to rule, as the dream-tree seeks the sun, and such a one am I. Long has this one, now mindless, denied to me my destiny. But behold, I, with a stroke, shall set things aright. Below us lies a green world, peopled by savages. Not one am I to take blood vengeance on a man new born from the change. Instead, I shall set him free to take up his life there below. May the Fates lead him again to royal state, if that be their will. But there were naught but fools among them, and they drew steel. I cried out to them that all, all should share. But they heeded me not, but rushed upon me. Then did I turn to Qualcon and drive the long blade at his throat but Goldad threw himself before him and fell in his place. Then they pressed me, and I did strike out against three who hemmed me close, and though they took many wounds they persisted in their madness, one leaping in to strike and another at my back, so that I whirled and slashed at shadows who danced away. In the end I hunted them down in those corners whither they had dragged themselves and each did I put to the sword. And I turned at last to find the earther gone and some few with them, and madness took me that I had been gulled like a tinker by common men. In the chamber of the memory-couch would I find them. There they would seek to give back to the mindless one that memory of past glories which I had schemed so long to deny him. Almost I wept to see such cunning wasted. Terrible in my wrath I came upon them there. There were but two, and though they stood shoulder to shoulder in the entryway, their poor dirks were no match for my long-blade. I struck them dead and went to the couch, to lay my hand on the cylinder marked with the vile golden black of Kulclan, that I might destroy it, and with it the Earther for ever. And I heard a sound and whirled about. A hideous figure staggered to me from the gloom, and for an instant I saw the flash of steel in the bloody hand of the accursed Golad, whom I had left for dead. Then I knew cold agony between my ribs. Golad lay slumped against the wall, his face greenish above the blood-soaked tunic. When he spoke, air whistled through his slashed throat. "'Have done, traitor, who once was honor of the king!' he whispered. "'Have you no pity for him who once ruled in justice and splendor at high Ock Hameloth?' "'Had you not robbed me of my destiny, murderous dog,' I croaked, "'that splendour would have been mine!' "'You came upon him helpless,' gasped Golad. "'Make some amends now for your shame. "'Let the Earther have his mind, which is more precious than his life. "'I but rest to gather strength. "'Soon will I rise and turn him from the couch.' then will I die content.' "'Once you were his friend,' Goldad whispered. "'By his side you fought, when both of you were young. Remember that, and have pity, to leave him here, in this ship of death, mindless and alone. I have loosed the hunters,' I shrieked in triumph. "'With them will the Earther share this tomb until the end of time.' then I searched within me and found a last terrible strength and I rose up, and even as my hand reached out to pluck away the mind trace of the king I felt the bloody fingers of Goled on my ankle, and then my strength was gone, and I was falling headlong into that dark well of death from which there is no returning. I woke up and lay for a long time in the dark without moving trying to remember the fragments of a strange dream of violence and death. I could still taste the lingering dregs of some bitter emotion. But I had more important things to think about than dreams. For just a moment I couldn't remember what it was I had to do. Then, with a start, I remembered where I was. I had lain down on the couch and pulled a headpiece into place. It hadn't worked. I thought hard, trying to tap a new reservoir of memories drew a blank. Maybe my earth-mind was too alien for the Valonian memory trace to effect. It was another good idea that hadn't worked out. But at least I had had a good rest. Now it was time to get moving, first to see if Amadourid was still asleep. I started to sit up. Nothing happened. I had a moment of vertigo as my inner ear tried to accommodate to having stayed in the same place after automatically adjusting to my intention of rising. I lay perfectly still and tried to think it through. I had tried to move, and had so much as twitched a muscle. I was paralyzed, or tied up, or maybe, if I was lucky, imagining things. I could try it again and next time. I was afraid to try. Suppose I tried and nothing happened, again." It was better to lie here and tell myself it was all a mistake. Maybe I should go back to sleep and wake up later and try it again." This was ridiculous. All I had to do was sit up. I... Nothing. I lay in the dark and tried to will an arm to move, my head to turn. It was as though I had no arm, no head, just a mind, alone in the dark. I strained to sense the ropes that held me down. Still nothing. No ropes, no arms, no body. There was no pressure against me from the couch, no vagrant itch or cramp, no physical sensation. I was a disembodied brain, lying nestled in a great bed of pitch-black cotton wool. Then abruptly I was aware of myself, not the gross mechanism of bone and muscle, but the neuroelectric field generated within a brain alive with flashing currents and a lightning interplay of molecular forces. A sense of orientation grew. I occupied a block of cells, here in the left hemisphere. The mass of neurotissue tissue loomed over me, gigantic. And I. I was reduced to the elemental ego, who possessed as a material appurtenance my arms and legs, my body my brain. Relieved of outside stimuli, I was able now to conceptualize myself as I actually was, an insubstantial state existing in an immaterial continuum, created by the action of neural currents within the cerebrum, as a magnetic field is created in space by the flow of electricity. And I knew what had happened. I had opened my mind to invasion by alien memories. The other mind had seized upon the sensory centers and driven me to this dark corner. I was a fugitive within my own skull. For a timeless time I lay stunned, immured now as the massive stones of Bar Ponderone had never confined me. My basic self-awareness still survived. Out was shunted aside, cut off from any contact with the body itself. With shadowy fingers of imagination, I clawed at the walls surrounding me, fought for a glimpse of light, for a way out. And found none. Then at last I began again to think. I must analyze my awareness of my surroundings, seek out channels through which impulses from sensory nerves flowed, and tap them. I tried cautiously. An extension of my self-concept reached out with ultimate delicacy. There were the ranked infinities of cells. There the rushing torrents of gross fluid. There the taut cables of the interconnecting web. And there Barrier. Blank and impregnable, the wall reared up. My questing tendril of self-stuff raced over the surface like an ant over a melon and found no tiniest fissure. It loomed alien, inscrutable. The invader who had stolen my brain. I withdrew. To dissipate my force was senseless. I must select a point of attack, hurl against it all the power of my surviving identity. Before it too dwindled away and the abstraction that was legion vanished forevermore. The last of the phantom emotions that had clung, for how long, to the incorporeal minefield had faded now, leaving me with no more than an intellectual determination to reassert myself. Dimly I recognized this sign of my waning sense of identity, but there was no surge of instinctive fear. Instead I coolly assessed my resources and almost at once stumbled into an unused channel, here within my own self-field. For a moment I recoiled from the outré configuration of the stored patterns, and then I remembered. I had been in the water, struggling, while the red soldier waited rifle aimed. And then a flood of data, flowing with cold, impersonal precision. And I had deftly marshaled the forces of my body to survive. And once more, as I hung by numbed fingers under the cornice of the Jordano building, the cold voice had spoken. And I had forgotten. The miracle had been pushed back, rejected by the conscious mind. But now I knew." This was the knowledge that I had received from the background briefing device that I had used in my island strong-room before I fled. This was the survival data known to all old Valonians of the days of the two worlds. It had lain here unused, the secrets of superhuman strength and endurance, buried by the imbecile of sensor-self's aversion to the alien. But the ego alone remained now, stripped of the burden of neurosis freed from the subconscious pressures. The levels of the mind were laid bare, and I saw close at hand the regions where dreams were born, the barren sources of instinctive fear patterns, the linkages to blinding emotions, and all lay now under my overt control. Without further hesitation I tapped the stored Valonian knowledge, encompassed it, made it mine. Then again I approached the barrier, spread out across it, probed in vain. Vile, primitive. The thought thundered out with crushing force. I recoiled, then renewed my attack, alert now. I knew what to do. I sought and found a line of synaptic weakness, burrowed at it. Intolerable. Vestigial. Erasure. I struck instantly, slipped past the shield, laid firm hold on an optic receptor bank. The alien mind threw itself against me, but too late. I held secure, and the assault faded, withdrew. Cautiously, I extended my interpretive receptivity. There was a pattern of pulses, oscillations in the lambda mu range. I tuned, focused. Abruptly, I was seeing. For a moment, my fragile equilibrium tottered as I strove to integrate the flow of external stimuli into my bodiless self-concept. Then a balance was struck. I held my ground and stared through the one eye I had recaptured from the usurper. And I reeled again. Bright daylight blazed in the chamber of Amadurid. The scene shifted as the body moved about, crossing the room, turning. I had assumed that the body still lay in the dark, but instead it walked without my knowledge, propelled by a stranger." The field of vision flashed across the couch. Omadurid was gone. I sensed that the entire left lobe, disoriented by the loss of the eye, had slipped now to secondary awareness, its defenses weakened. I retreated momentarily from my optic outpost, laid a temporary traumatic block across the access nerves to keep the intruder from reasserting possession and concentrated my force in an attack on the auricular channels. It was an easy route. Instantly my eye coordinated its impressions with those coming in along the oral nerves and heard my voice mouth a curse. The body was standing beside a bare wall with a hand laid upon it. In the wall a recess partly obscured by a sliding panel stood empty. The body turned, strode to a doorway emerged into a gloomy, violet-shadowed corridor. The glance flicked from the face of one guard to another. They stared in open-mouthed surprise, brought weapons up. "'You dare to bar the path of the Lord Amerum?' my voice slashed at the men. "'Stand aside, as you value your lives!' And the body pushed past them, striding off along the corridor. It passed through a great archway descended a flight of marble stairs, came along a hall I had seen on my tour of the Palace of Sapphires, and into the onyx chamber with the great golden sunburst that covered the high black wall. In the great owner's chair at the ringboard, board Amadurid sat scowling at the lame courtier whose red hair was hidden now under a black cowl. Between them Foster stood, the heavy manacles dragging at his wrists. Amadurid turned. His face paled then flushed darkly. He rose, teeth bared. The gaze of my eye fixed on Foster. Foster stared back, a look of incredulity growing on his face. "'My lord Urther!' I heard my voice say. The eye swept down and fixed on the manacles. The body drew back a step as if in horror. "'You overreach yourself, Amadurid!' my voice cried harshly. Amadurit stepped toward me, his immense arm raised. "'Lay not a hand on me, dog of a usurper!' my voice roared out. "'By the gods! Would you take me for common clay?' And, unbelievably, Amadurit paused, stared in my face. "'I know you as the upstart dragon, petty owner,' he rumbled. "'But I know I see another there behind your pale eyes.' "'Foul was the crime that brought me to this pass,' my voice said. "'But know that your master, Amarun, stands before you, in the body of a primitive.' Amaron! Amadura jerked as though he had been struck. My body turned, dismissing him. The eye rested on Foster. "'My liege,' my voice said unctuously. "'I swear the dog dies for this treason.' "'It is a mindless one, intruder,' Amadurid broke in. "'Seek no favor with the Earther, for he that was Earther is no more. You deal with me now.' My body whirled on Amadurid. "'Give a thought to your tone, lest your ambitions prove your death.' Amadurid put a hand to his dagger. "'A Maron of Bros Ilion, you may be, or a changeling from dark regions I know not of.' but know that this day I hold all power in Valon. "'And what of this one who was once Qualquan? What consort do you hold with him, you say is mindless?' I saw my hand sweep out in a contemptuous gesture at Foster. "'An end to patience!' the great owner roared. "'Shall I stand in my inner citadel and give account of myself to a madman?' He started toward my body. Does the fool Amadurid forget the power of the great Ameron?' my voice said softly. And the towering figure hesitated once more, searching my face. "'The Earther's hour is past, and yours, Bungther and Fool,' my voice went on. "'Your months, or is it years, of self-delusion are ended.' My voice rose in a bellow. "'Know that I!' Amaron the Great, have returned to rule at High Och hemeloth Months? rumbled Amaderid. Indeed, I believe the tales of the Greymen are true, and that an evil spirit has returned to haunt me. You speak of months? He threw back his head, laughed a choked throaty laugh that was half sob. No, demon, or madman, or ancient prince of evil... For thirty centuries have I brooded alone, sealed from an empire by a single key. I felt the shock wreck through and through the invader mind. This was the opportunity I had hoped for. Quick as thought I moved, slashed at the wavering shield and was past it. I grappled onto the foul mind matrix, scanned its symbolisms. A miasma of twisted concepts like great webs, a squirm with bristling nodes like crouching spiders, and through it all a yammering torrent of deformed thought-shapes. In my eagerness I was careless. The invader mind, recovering, struck back. Too late I felt it slip into my awareness, flick over the stored information. I leaped to protect one fact, and lost my gains. With only a single tenuous line of rapport with the alien mind still open, I clung, shaken, but hugging precious patterns of stolen data. My rate had been no more than an irritation to the other mind, but I had fetched away a mass of information. I interpreted it, integrated it, matched it to known patterns. A complex structure of relationships evolved, growing into a new awareness. Upon the mind-picture of Foster's face, was now superimposed another, that of Kulklon, Earther of all Valen, ruler of the two worlds. And other pictures, snatched from the intruder mind, were present now in the earth consciousness of me, Legion. The vaults, deep in the rock under the fabled city of ak where the mind trace of every citizen was stored, sealed by the Earther and keyed to his mind alone. Ameron, Urging the king to embark on a far voyage, stressing the burden of government, tempting him to bring with him the royal mine trace. Colclan's acquiescence and Ameron's secret joy at the advancement of his scheme, the coming of the change for the Earther, aboard ship, far out in space, and the Vizier's bold stroke, and then the fools who found him at the lifeboat, and the loss of all, all. There my own memories took up the tale, the awakening of Foster, unsuspecting, and his recording of the mind of the dying Ameron; the flight from the hunters, the memory trace of the king that lay for three millennia among Neolithic bones until I, a primitive, plucked it from its place, and the pocket of a coarse fiber garment where the cylinder lay now, on the hip of the body I inhabited but as inaccessible to me as if it had been a million miles away." But there was a second memory trace, Amerald's. I had crossed a galaxy to come to Foster, and with me, locked in an unmarked pewter cylinder, I had brought Foster's ancient nemesis. I had given it life and a body. Foster, once Earther, had survived against all logic and had come back, back from the dead. The last hope of a golden age, to meet his fate at my hands. Three thousand years, I heard my voice saying, three thousand years have the men of Valin lived mindless, with the glory that was Valin locked away in a vault without a key. I alone, said Hamadurid, have borne the curse of knowledge. Long ago, in the days of the Earther, I took my mind-trace from the vaults in anticipation of the day of days when he should fall. Little joy has it brought me. "'And now,' my voice said, "'you think to force this mind, that is no mind, to unseal the vault?' "'I know it for a hopeless task,' Amadurid said. "'At first I thought, since he speaks the tongue of old Valin, that he dissembled. But he knows nothing.' This is but the dry husk of the earther, and I sicken of the sight. I would fain kill him now and let the long farce end. Not so, my voice cut in. Once I decreed exile to the mindless one. So be it. The face of Amadurid twisted in its rage. Your witless chatterings, too. I tire of them. Wait, my voice snarled. Would you put aside the key?" There was silence as Amadurit stared at my face. I saw my hand rise into view. Gripped in it was Foster's memory trace. "'The two worlds lie in my hand,' my voice spoke. "'Observe well the black and golden bands of the royal memory trace. Who holds this key is all-powerful. As for the mindless body yonder, let it be destroyed.' A Madrid locked eyes with mine. Then... "'Let the deed be done,' he said. The redhead drew a long stiletto from under his cloak, smiling. I could wait no longer. Along the link I had kept through the intruder's barrier, I poured the last of the stored energy of my mind. I felt the enemy recoil, then strike back with crushing force. But I was past the shield. As the invader reached out to encircle me, I shattered my unified forward impulse into myriad nervous streamlets that flowed on, under, over and around the opposing force. I spread myself through and through the inner all-mass, drawing new power from the trunk sources. I caught a vicious blast of pure wrath that rocked me and then I grappled, shield to shield with the alien. And he was stronger. Like a corrosive fluid, the massive personality gestalt shredded my extended self-field. I drew back slowly, reluctantly. I caught a shadowy impression of the body, standing rigid, eyes blank, and sensed a rumbling voice that spoke, "'Quick, the intruder!' Now I struck for the right optic center, clamped down with a death grip. The enemy mind went mad as the darkness closed in. I heard my voice scream and I saw in vivid pantomime the vision that threatened the invader. The red head darting to me, the stiletto flashing. And then the invading mind broke, swirled into chaos, and was gone. I reeled, shocked and alone inside my skull. The brain loomed, dark and untenanted now. I began to move, crept along the major nerve paths, reoccupied the cortex. Agony. I twisted, felt again with a massive return of sensation my arms, my legs, opened both eyes to see blurred figures moving, and in my chest a hideous pain. I was sprawled on the floor, gasping. Sudden understanding came. The redhead had struck, and the other mind, in full rapport with the pain centers, had broken under the shock, left the stricken brain to me alone. As through a red veil I saw the giant figure of Amadurid loom, stoop over me, rise with the royal cylinder in his hand. And beyond, Foster, strained backward, the chain between his wrists garroting the redhead. Amadurid turned, took a step, flicked the man from Foster's grasp and hurled him aside. He drew his dagger. Quick as a hunting cat, Foster leaped, struck with the manacles. And the knife clattered across the floor. Amadur backed away with a curse, while the redhead seized the stiletto he had let fall and moved in. Foster turned to meet him, staggering, and raised heavy arms. I fought to move, got my hand as far as my side, fumbled with the leather strap. The alien mind had stolen from my brain the knowledge of the cylinder, but I had kept from it the fact of the pistol. I had my hand on its butt now. Painfully I drew it, dragged my arm up struggled to raise the weapon, centered it on the back of the mop of red hair, free now of the cowl, and fired. A Madrid had found his dagger. He turned back from the corner where Foster had sent it spinning. Spattered with the blood of the redhead, Foster retreated until his back was at the wall. A haggard figure against the gaudy golden sunburst. The flames of beaten metal shimmered and flared before my dimming vision. The great gold circles of the two worlds seemed to revolve, while waves of darkness rolled over me. But there was a thought, something I had found among the patterns in the intruder's mind. At the center of the sunburst rose a boss, in black and gold, erupting a foot from the wall like a sword-hilt. The thought came from far away. The sword of the earther, used once in the dawn of a world by a warrior-king but laid away now, locked in its sheath of stone, keyed to the mind-pattern of the earther, that none other might ever draw it to some ignoble end. A sword, keyed to the basic mind-pattern of the king. I drew a last breath, blinked back the darkness. Amadurd stepped past me, knife in hand toward the unarmed man. "'Foster!' I croaked. "'The sword!' Foster's head came up. I had spoken in English, the syllables rang strangely in that outworld setting. Amadurid ignored the unknown words. "'Draw the sword! From the stone! Your Kulklan, Urther of Valen. I saw him reach out, grasp the ornate hilt. Amadurid, with a cry, leaped toward him. The sword slid out smoothly, four feet of glittering steel. Amadurid stopped stared at the manacled hands gripping the hilt of the fabled blade. Slowly he sank to his knees, bent his neck. "'I yield, Colclan. he said. "'I crave the mercy of the Earther." Behind me I heard thundering feet. Dimly I was aware of Torbu raising my head, a foster leaning over me. They were saying something, but I couldn't hear. My feet were cold and the coldness crept higher. I felt hands touch me, and the cool smoothness of metal against my temples. I wanted to say something, tell Foster that I had found the answer, the one that had always eluded me before. I wanted to tell him that all lives are the same length when viewed from the foreshortened perspective of death, and that life, like music, requires no meaning but only a certain symmetry. But it was too hard. I tried to cling to the thought to carry it with me into the cold void toward which I moved, but it slipped away, and there was only my self-awareness, alone in emptiness, and the winds that swept through eternity blew away the last shred of ego, and I was one with darkness. End of chapter 18